This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you taking some time to sit with us here around the world. Keep the emails coming. Shout out to the Patreons and our technical wizard, Matthew Wayne Selznick. And I am just so excited today because this magnificent woman has written a book that really resonated for me. She's also a scientist, an entrepreneur. She's a classic pianist. I'm going to have to ask her about that since I play. She founded The Squad. And the name of the book is Life Beyond Likes. God, do we need it? We need that one. Trust me, and there's an order link on the on her page. It's such an honor to welcome to the family for the first time, Miss Isa Watson. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Paul, for having me. As I was looking at all you've been able to do, and you're relatively young, I wondered, were you when you were growing up, were you just surrounded by love and support and empowered to feel like you could do anything? Definitely empowered. Uh, my my dad used to, my parents, they told me, they were like, you know, as you can do anything you put your mind to. So I used to always challenge him. I'm like, really? You're lying to me. I'm like, so do you think I can build like flying cars? They were like, absolutely. I was like, so do you think I can go to space? They were like, absolutely. And so, yes, I, and you know, there was that combined with, you know, there was definitely love, but it was in the context of, you know, work hard, work hard, work hard, you know? And so, you know, I had very academically rigorous parents um, who just really pushed me, but it was really about, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. Don't let the world tell you that you can't. And did you run into glass ceilings? Because here you are a woman and also a woman of color, like you're breaking some rules. I definitely ran into glass ceilings, but I will say that, you know, kind of like the juggernaut, I just kind of try to bust through when I can, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to break like a Hillary Clinton glass ceiling and be the first woman elected president of the United States. But um, I definitely have a ton of ceilings that are placed on me and I either bust through them or redirect when I need to. And as a child, were you a prodigy on the piano? Well, how did that get started? I played as a lot, but I got started later and I'm at the Berklee College of Music. But you're a classically trained and you were a classic pianist. Yeah, I'm classically trained. So my father um, was a pianist and he. I just started, you know, gathering interest from seeing him play. And then they put me in lessons when I starting at five years old. And by the time I was 10, I was playing, you know, the assortment of Chopin and Beethoven and Mozart, you know, and it turned into, I would say, one of my most um, emotionally soothing activities as a child. You know, I, I think it was the place where I learned to express my emotions. Like I could play the same song and my mom could tell what type of day I had at school. Was I really angry? Was I really happy? Was I sad and mellow? And so the piano was just kind of, I call it like my first best friend. And for me, I didn't realize it till later. That was really my first foray into meditation. Because I'd play for hours, I'd turn the light out and time would disappear. And really, so would the mind ego. You kind of merge with the music. You really do, though. Do you meditate or anything? Or are you all just the mind rock and roll? No, I definitely meditate. I would say that prior to COVID, I used to go to a meditation studio in New York about three mornings every week. Um, but now what I do is when I wake up in the morning, I get up at about 530. Um, I you know, read a kind of a devotional. So it's like a women's journal every single day. There's some new message that's really inspirational. And I, I like to start my um, days without technology around me um, and really on a meditative front. And I sit and I meditate for more like five to 10 minutes as opposed to the 30 to 45 minute classes I was taking. How important is that to balance out all the other stuff? It's very important. You know, I think that how you start your day and how you end your day are supremely important to making sure that you remain grounded as a person. Um, this is something that, you know, I have been uh, told by my executive coach. And when I started building in and being very intentional about my morning and evening routines, that's when I really, my productivity throughout the day not just from a work perspective, but also mentally and emotionally just shot through the roof. 
it's so important because people think, oh, I just got to keep getting things accomplished. If you sharpen the saw, if you pause, and you can be so much more productive and also more connected in what you do and how you do it. You know, I got, I've been, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, Paul, that I'm perfect at this. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I haven't made my assortment of mistakes around this, but we are a very achievement oriented society, right? You know, even the way that we interact with the internet is based on our achievements. Hey guys, I got this promotion. Hey guys, I'm pregnant on the very first try. Hey guys, I, you know, um, built this new company, right? Like we are conditioned so heavy to just share our achievements with people. And so that ends up being kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we just want to go for the next thing, go for the next thing. And I was like that for a long, long time. And sometimes I even still to this day, find myself in those cycles, but I have awareness around what it feels like, what I'm doing. And I, I get myself out of that cycle, you know, and I, I, I really challenge and encourage people. Don't just think about your achievements from, you know, the professional things that others see you do or the personal milestones. Think about your achievements as some of these intrinsic internal things. Like how, how, like, did I have a really emotionally sound week last week? How was my soul and my spirit? How are my relationships with my friends? Those are all achievements that feed our soul. And quite frankly, with this loneliness epidemic, because we are, you know, comparing ourselves to other people so much, you know, the, the Surgeon General actually equated, you know, extreme loneliness with like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, right? It's very unhealthy for us. And so achievement to me, I try to make, you know, I try to define it as something that's really beyond, you know, what others can see, but how, how do I feel on the inside? How did you break free from that cycle? That's not as easy as you, you could make it sound. It's, that's a very hard thing to do. So I think, you know, with any change, Paul, the first thing is awareness, right? And the willingness to be aware of your habit. <laughs> you know, I can tell an alcoholic, hey, you're drinking is a problem. But if they're not ready to absorb that, then there's not much, you know, they can do, right? And so it's that, that openness and awareness. Um, and then the second thing is being intentional about, how I feel during the day, right? Or, and, and engaging in things that made me feel good. For example, when I used to be a scroller on social media, I realized I felt really bad about my life. <laughs> I felt really bad about where I was in life. And I don't scroll anymore, right? I actually, I talked to three to five friends every single day. I'm on squad all the time with my friends, right? And so I think that, you know, quite frankly, being intentional around spending time on the activities that bring you joy. I am also a competitive skydiver. I'm also a skier, right? And so those, those, I skydive almost every week. <laughs> Most people don't know that about me, right? And so that brings me joy. Skydiving brings me so much meditation that a lot of other activities just don't these days. And the last thing I'll mention is that you know, just like I said, it's important to start your day off on the right foot. It's also important to start your week off on the right foot. I mean, if you even look at Twitter on, on Sundays and, you know, sneak, sneak a little scrolling in there, people are like, oh my God, is it Sunday already? Or on Monday, they're like, this is the monday Monday. Oh my God, I'm so tired, right? And so what I have found that really works for me is that I write myself a love letter at the top of every month. And this is a love letter because I realized for a long time and still to this day sometimes, I can be very unkind to myself and very hard on myself. And, you know, Isaac, you didn't do this right. Isaac, you didn't do that right. You should have done this. You should have done that. And you know, that love letter helps me practice self-love and positive self-talk. So I, I, I raise that because, again, beyond the self-awareness, it's the intentionality. And I know that my negative self-talk was really impeding, you know, my happiness and weighing on me in big ways. And so I said, hey, I got to practice positive self-talk as a counter. And that's actually been really helpful. I want to jump out of a plane, but it feels unnatural for a human being to jump out of a plane. How did you overcome the primal fear of that? I never really had a fear, to be honest. Um, <laughs> if you look at statistics, skydiving, <laughs> if you look at statistics, skydiving is actually safer than driving a car up the highway, right? Um, there are five million, three million 
um, skydives, 4 million skydives a year in the US, 39,000 licensed skydivers. And so out of 20 million skydives in the last five years, there have been like less than 15 fatalities. You look at car accidents and, you know, and so I think for me, I might, my cousin said this um, to me recently. He was like, you know, Isaac, you've always been a daredevil. You were always the first to go ride that roller coaster. You were always the first to go jump off that big diving, <laughs> you know, the big diving block. And I was like, was I? Oh, I guess I was. And so I think for me, I always wanted to do it. I just didn't realize how much peace and meditation it would bring me. What's it like coming down? You know what? People always ask, the, the biggest question I get in skydiving is, oh my God, did your stomach drop? Did your stomach drop like a roller coaster? I don't want my stomach to drop for a whole 60 seconds. And, you know, I tell people, because, you know, I'm a scientist, right? I'm like, you know, your stomach doesn't drop because when you're dropping on a roller coaster, your vertical speed is changing a lot relative to your horizontal speed. But when you're skydiving, you're actually kind of flying forward. So your horizontal and vertical speeds are pretty similar. So you don't feel that drop, right? You just feel like you're just flying and it feels so free. But so I usually jump out the plane at about 13,000 feet and I pull my parachute at about 4,000 feet. And regardless of if I'm in free fall for that 55, 60 seconds, or if I'm under canopy landing my body, um, you, you see the world from a different perspective. Like being up there and, and just looking down at the world, not that I'm like looking down on the people on the ground, but I'm just like, oh my God, all these ground problems, <laughs> they're not shit, <laughs> you know? I'm just like, you know, it's, it's so insanely meditative, just kind of looking at the world from that perspective and just being in a moment where nothing else is distracting you. There, there's no, I mean, you skydive with people, but pull you, when you deploy your canopy and stuff like that, you are just solely focused on you and being in that moment. And I think what the internet has done to a lot of our society is, as, is that it's really in, in inhibited our ability to live in the present and to be present. You ever wish you could just stay up there and fly around? I, I've always wanted to fly. I mean, I love it. I, um, I just actually finished a competition uh, last weekend. Um, I, I, I do wish I can kind of live up there or like just skydive. Like after I retire, I'm definitely going to be skydiving multiple times a week. <laughs> do you need a 12 step group on this? I bet you're addicted to it. I am addicted to it, actually, but the addiction isn't harmful. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. Most skydivers actually describe feeling addicted to the sport as well. And, and I think it's just really the peace and the, the meditative energy that it brings. And a lot of skydivers describe that feeling. What is it about you that doesn't where fear doesn't hold you back? Obviously, you know, I've always ever since I was a child, like, you, you know how you grow up and you become an adult one, one of the days, and then your parents start telling you about your personality as a toddler and your personality as a, you know, I just, I was that little kid where I was like, you know, my mom was like, you know, she said she would be like, Isa, don't jump off that, you know, wall is too high. I'd be like, really? It's too high. Okay. Boom. Jumped off. <laughs> or Isa, don't, don't, run fast on my thing, you're going to slip. Oh, really? I'm a, I'm a slip. Okay. Boom. Slipped. Right. And so I just never had that, um, that, you know, concept of fear stopping me. And I realized now I realize that it, that, that is a unique trait. Um, and people ask me all the time, how did you not let fear stop you? I think I, I will admit that while activities, I don't really get fearful around. Right. Um, I do have, kind of emotional fear around certain things, right? You know, I wrote a book. I put, you know, elements of my life and my vulnerability out there that I'm, I, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, are people going to be mean to me now? You know, um, you know, you just never know, right? And the people are so mean sometimes. And so I will say that I do have fear in certain areas, but definitely not in any kind of like physical activity. Yeah, it, it really struck me uh, the night before my first book came out. I was laying in bed and I thought, oh, what have I done? Oh, my God, I put my soul out there. Whose dumb idea was this? And then it was like, well, can't do anything about it now. It let, you're free at last. Exactly. The book is sent to the printer. So we're, we're already locked in. How did the book come into being? And I, I really think it's a powerful, important book. 
you know, it came into being in a few ways, one through my personal experience and the other through my, um, through my work and the company that I created. But, you know, I, I say that was drinking from the Kool-Aid for a lot of my 20s, right? I was like, oh, let me post this cool vacation. Let me post this, um, you know, uh, really cool promotion. And then let me, uh, let, let's see what all the likes I get. Oh, that didn't get enough likes. Let me take that down. Let me take that down. Let me repost it. Let me optimize it. Maybe Sunday night's not the best time to post, right? And so I find I found that, you know, I had was living on social media between Facebook, uh, Twitter, you know, Instagram, everything. And, you know, I went through a really very personal deep tragedy where my father was, was killed in a a highway accident. Uh, My parents sponsored a trip for kids to visit colleges every, or college Hampton University every year. And um, a handful of years ago, that bus ran off a straight road, flipped over and ejected both my parents out the front window. And my dad didn't survive that. And, you know, I realized I had spent so much time you know, playing into the social media game and being cool and stuff. But I had really underinvested in the relationships that mattered and brought me joy. And so when I was going through that tragic moment, I, I, despite having thousands of like followers, connections, this is before I deleted my Instagram and started it over. Um, that was the loneliest, loneliest I had felt you know, because I had it nurtured and watered the things that actually mattered in life. And so I, that, that was one, you know, element of that. Right. And then the other element is, you know, kind of going down that path. One thing I realized is that when I started to kind of open up and talk to people, like, wow, I just felt so lonely and I feel lonely. I feel like, Social media makes me feel like I'm behind in life. Mind you, I skipped two grades. I went to, you know, I have a chemistry degree from Hampton. I went to MIT, like, you know, um, you know, was like one of the youngest stars on Wall Street, one of the youngest published chemists in the world. But then I still with all of that, I would be on social media being like, damn, I'm a failure, you know? And so that was so powerful to me. And it was even more powerful the fact that so many people felt that. And so, you know, I decided to create a startup, an app called Squad that's really oriented around your closest friends. So it's the, there's no likes on the app. It's really where you go and hang out with your close friends every day, audio, exchanging messages, live calling, et cetera. But, you know, so my personal tragedy led me to squad, which then led me to, you know, as being one of the top venture backed black women in the US um, to talking about squad and why I created it, right? And then everyone came up to me, they were like, have you wrote a book about this? Have you wrote a book about this? I was like, "Uh, no, should I? (laughs) And they were like, yes, we really wanna read more about this. And so I wrote Life Beyond Likes, subtitle, logging off your screen and into your life in response to a huge demand that people have to elevate their awareness around how they use social media and the traps they've fallen into and and get tools to really kind of tap back into their life and reestablish a relationship with their joy centers, right? Because we, we've just fallen so far from that. And so that was why I wrote the book. It was kind of personal tragedy led to company, led to book. Do we ever get over missing our loved ones? My father didn't die tragically, but he was my best friend. And it's been over four years and I swear I miss him every day. And I miss my mom. I think of them, recall memories that were beautiful. Songs remind me, everything reminds me of them. How about you? Do you feel him in present with you in your heart or? Do you ever feel them come to you? Mine come in dreams or a feather somewhere where I just know it's from the other side. You know, I will, I always say grief is weird, but I never not miss my dad. And my dad and I were so close. He was my best friend and every big life decision I made with my dad's counsel. And so, and then, you know, my dad was, you know, the person who, if he wouldn't let anybody tell me I couldn't do something. Right. And so sometimes I, I like 
I'll talk smack in the bathroom mirror. I'm like, yeah, you got this. Da, 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 da. And like, I'll almost feel my dad's spirit around me <laughs> being like, yeah, you know, or, um, you know, I've had, you know, the dream stuff happen as well, but you, I never not miss my dad. It is still a void um, that I have. And quite frankly, I have talked to people whose parents or loved ones have been gone for 20 years and they still miss them, right? So I think it's okay to, you know, what I will say is that, you know, at one point I would miss my dad and just bust out into tears and just cry and be sad, get under the covers and watch Netflix. And, you know, for the most part, I will have that moment from time to time, but for the most part, my dad's memories are, you know, encouraging to me and they're happy, um, you know, just as opposed to being really sad about the fact that he's not here. Well, talk about the squad too. That I you founded that, and I was looking at it. It looks extremely interesting, and what a great idea! Squad was built almost as a contrast to social media, where you're posturing for likes. You know, people. Our algorithm is built <laughs> to um, really uh, make us addicted to the validation of likes, right? And and just I just want to like mention a magnitude thing for a second, Paul. We're so conditioned that, you know, if we have some good news we share and 50 people like it, oh, that's not a lot. What? What? <laughs> if, if, if I'm like out on the street and I'm like, oh my God, I just got a promotion. 50 people are not going to walk up to me and be like, you know what? That's what's up. You know, like the magnitude difference on social versus real life is, is vast. And we've been kind of trapped into that numbers. Um, that numbers chamber, but, you know, squad was built as a contrast to that, you know, in part a, um, because like I said, social media is where you're hanging out with a bunch of strangers, people you'll never laugh in the same room with. Um, and then B, um, people were focused on discovery over deepening, right? They're kind of two forces in life, you know, with a lot of things, even with like work scope, right? It's like, do I want to discover and go broad or do I want to go deep? And what we found was that something like a third of millennials a few years ago said they had no close friends. And you you look at that trend with the boomers, boomers are like, yeah, hang out my friends all the time. Well, they didn't have social media and they were like picking up the phone and going over to play in their friend's backyard, right? And so um, the whole notion of under-investing in our friendship has become an epidemic in itself. And so with Squad, the only way you can actually discover people um, are if you have their phone number programmed in your phone. And it's really a place that's just for you and your close friends. And you're sending, you know, like I said, audio messages. We call it, you know, audio world building, you know, where you build the world of just you and your closest people, um, people that you do laugh in the same room with, right? There are no likes on the platform. There's no sense of validation. It's just you and your closest friends. And I think that, you know, when I've talked to a lot of squad users, because we do user interviews and focus groups, like continuously, people always say squad is like the one place that they can go to on their phone, where they feel safe, secure, and like just can be themselves. Right. And so I think that, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's, you know, I started that company, you know, became one of the highest fundraising Black women in the US, you know, as a venture back company um, with Squad. And we're so excited for the traction that we're getting. We're so excited that, you know, we've recently found that even teenagers are really um, adapting, adopting the platform really well, which, which just makes me feel good because these are the people who grew up with social media in middle school, <laughs> you know, um, which, you know, I know if I had social media in middle school, I would have been a hot mess. Um, and so that is, uh, that's what squad is. And, you know, we always say, like, like I said, contrast social media squad is just you, your world, your friends. When you were writing this book, were you shocked about how destructive social media is? Did you look at the statistics and all the things it does to destroy, especially young women? A hundred percent. Right. So, um, 
I, I did. A, so the book, it was really funny. One of the endorsers of the book is this guy named Chad Dickerson. And he was, uh, he's an executive coach now, but he was the CEO of Etsy. And um, he wrote an endorsement for the book. And he said, you know, Isa actually blends storytelling with like hardcore research. And I was like, oh yeah, I did do that. Right. Um, but, you know, the seeking likes, right. The, from a, from a female perspective, this perfected body we don't wake up looking flawless all the time in the way that you know Beyonce said you know and you know not even just from a your face perspective it's your whole body there's this uh surgical procedure called Brazilian butt lifts and that's when they take the fat from your waist and they put it into your booty to give you that small waist, big booty look, right? So that Instagram made that very popular and Brazilian butt lifts in, um, in a, like a few years had 5X, you know? And so that, that we call it kind of the Instagram effect of that. And so when you think about um, also uh, size, right? I live in New York City where <laughs> it's normal to be skinny, but I was just in Houston, Texas the other day and I was like, oh, I'm actually a normal size person. <laughs> and you know, what you see on social media is the skinny people, right? And so there's so much from a, you, you asked about women and young girls, there's so much damage that has been done to our self-esteem with what we're consuming, on social media. And so from a, that, that's from an image perspective. But the other thing I will say is that social media is also a place that amplifies what I call outrage loops, right? So if there's content on there that makes you angry, they're going to push that content to you. And that's actually been proven, you know, on, on Facebook for a while. So our, our news feeds used to be chrono chronological. Right. So you see the most recent reverse chronology, the most recent to the latest. Right. You just scroll through. But in about 2015, 2016, they changed it to be algorithmic. So every piece of content in your newsfeed had a score. And based on that score, that's the order in which they would show you things on the newsfeed. And did you know that the angry emoji had a five time higher rank a rating or input than a like button? So the more of your friends who were replying that they were angry about something, the more likely it was going to appear at the top of your newsfeed. And then on top of that, there was this, um, you know, this Facebook whistleblower. They also showed that if, um, and also with the NYU study, they showed that if a post contained emotional or moral language, there was a 20% boost in the algorithm score for every single moral or emotional word that was used. You know, like ban, vile, angry, upset, words like that, right? And so social media has done two things. I mean, a lot of things to us, but you know, it gives us this sense of perfectionism, right? Because keep in mind, people are posting their positive snippets. They're posting their best photos, right? They're not posting their, you know, photos where their hair, like a piece of hair is out of place, right? And then it also draws us in and it makes us, you know, angry, right? Or, you know, upsets us. And so there's a lot of, um, just unhealthy things that have come out of it. And that's why in part, I wrote the book to elevate our awareness of how social media makes us feel and how we can use it in a more healthy way. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And these filters where no one looks like they're a human being anymore. I think a lot of these women could go out in public and no one would recognize them. And they already were beautiful, but now I don't even, it's crazy. They look like they're simulations or animatrons or something and they're all using it even the, the women who were paid millions of dollars to be on covers of magazines yeah and the filters do two things really a it clears our skin <laughs> so you know when you put on a filter that that little pimple that you had on your forehead or you know a little acne breakout you had on your cheek that's gone um the second thing is that these filters actually um convert a person's face into a very symmetrical Eurocentric look. So think about the more pointed noses, right? Think about, you know, the foreheads that are a little bit smaller. That's what these filters do. And to your point, yes, people are using them to the, the first filter I think was that Snapchat dog ears one. 
And, you know, you just saw people, all these people on the internet, like, why, why are everybody got dog ears, right? Where does that come from? And then, you know, Snapchat was like, oh, this is engaging. And boom, what, what all these social media platforms do is they chase engagement. Um, but yes, that those filters, and they also make us look a little thinner. Um, they definitely uh, feed into our own insecurities in a, in a really deep way. And then you have eating disorders, suicide rates, depression, like you said, which is really the real pandemic. Oh, 100%. So, you know, from a, a depression, you know, anxiety, there was this, there was this UPenn study that of middle schoolers, the average age was 12 years old. There was this UPenn study that showed that um, social media actually created uh, what they call social oriented perfectionism. And um, they also call it socially prescribed perfectionism. So they said in the study that, you know, teenagers were fed unrealistic expectations of what they should own, how they should look, what they should achieve. And that was linked directly to unprecedented rates of anxiety in 12 year olds. And so when you think about that, anxiety and depression are cousins, right? Um, and, you know, think about that perfectionism that also turns into excessive feedback seeking and technology-based social comparison, right? So keep in mind that people are posting their highlight reels, they're posting their best photos, they're not posting the ones they don't want you to see, but that's created this illusion of perfectionism, which makes us feel more and more inadequate. And so when you think about who's really impacted, right? Yes, suicides have gone up disproportionately in teenagers and especially teenage girls in the last five years at, at the hands of social media usage. And our brains, especially young kids, are not designed for this, and it, it kills the development of the brain. You're not outside getting multi-level stimulation, and we know for a fact that we need human connection, touch, direct contact to develop and be healthy and whole. And this social media, all these platforms take people away from that. We used to be punished. We would be taken out of the herd and made to stay inside for half an hour. A hundred percent. Right. I, I I joke with all my parent friends. I'm like, do you ever tell your kids to just like go play outside with their friends? Because that's, that's what my parents used to tell me. We didn't have like, you know, but a lot of parents these days, they struggle. Um, and I get a lot of questions from a lot of parents. So like my child outside of doing their homework, all they want to do is sit in their room and scroll on social media. Like, what do I do? Right. And to your point, you know, Paul, there's a reason why your car insurance goes down dramatically at 25. <laughs> you know, our emotional indexes are just not there at 11, 12, 13 years old. It is not normal as a human to process this magnitude of feedback. I posted a TikTok like last week and it had 60,000 views on this one TikTok. That is abnormal. I didn't even have 60,000 people in my hometown, right? And so, you know, and so when a kid goes to school, they see their classmates, they're getting like a handful of feedback. That's normal. But our, our, our brain just wasn't meant to process this level of feedback um, and this level of, you know, um, information that we're getting fed to us every day in a huge way through social media. For the parents listening, how do they manage it? Because all the other kids have it. They're going to hear that. And I've never seen breakdowns like when my friends take away their teenage daughter's phone or even threaten to take away the phone. It's almost like saying, we're going to turn your oxygen off. Uh, yeah, these kids are so addicted. It's, it's hilarious. So the first thing I'll say about parents, right, is that, you know, every child is different. So I think that there's not a one size fits all. Um, but, you know, one of the things as well is that, you know, from a pure time spent, there are a lot of controls that Apple enables. I can't speak as much on the Android side to say, hey, limit, you know, uh, Sarah's use on Instagram to or, you know, TikTok to 30 minutes a day. Right. Um, so and I find that a lot of parents kind of don't necessarily implement those controls. Right. And then, you know, I, I had a parent friend that I had like a little bit of an argument with a few weeks ago because his 14 year old son asked to. Um, 
download this app because the app requires uh, approval from the parent, right? Download this app that tells him who unfollowed him on Instagram. I'm like, what, what are, what is that actually doing? Why'd you approve that? You know, these are really bad habits that you are, you know, creating for your child in a really psychologically dangerous place. So I think that parents can actually have more agency of control over, you know, what it is that, you know, their kids are doing and engaging. But the other thing I'll, I'll say, and I say this with like a lot of, you know, gentleness, because a lot of my parent friends are really exhausted. Like parental burnout is a thing. And it was a thing that was really amplified on social media. And so for a lot of my parent friends, it's like, here, here, just take this iPad and just give me a five, five minutes, five minutes of myself, please, please. Can I use the bathroom and please, please. And so, you know, the one thing I encourage a lot of parents to do is, you know, carving out time to do outside activities with your kids, right? Without the phones. Um, so for me, I find a lot of phones are just kind of integrated everywhere, like at the dinner table, you know, we, even as a 30 something year old, my mom will call us out if we're on our phones at the dinner table. <laughs> she does not play that. And so, you know, I think that, you know, in the way that I encourage people to block out chunks of time every week for their friends, I encourage parents to block out time every week for, you know, outdoor or in-person family events and activities, because when you don't block that time, the, the life that we live today, time gets away from us. And next thing you know, it's Sunday night and they're cramming for homework again. And so I think that, again, exercising agency over the controls that are in place, right? Um, and then also, um, you know, really, really blocking out time for those kind of in-person and family-oriented activities. I think those are two really good places that parents can start. And the third thing I'll mention is that, you know, a lot of, and it goes to really kind of understanding your child, because like I said, not every child is the same. I'm one of six kids. We are all very different. Um, and the one thing I'll say is like, actually understanding what are your particular child's you know, vulnerabilities and susceptibilities, right? You know, not every kid is going to be super into their look. I definitely wasn't at that age, right? You know, but they may be really into the whole um, social media viral content of, oh my God, I got into Harvard and there's all these people behind me screaming, right? <laughs> you know, so I think it's um, making sure you understand what are your kids' vulnerabilities and insecurities in a big way and countering that and feeding feeding that, right? And working on that with your child because your child is going, whatever insecurity they have is going to be amplified by their social media use, 100%. That's just how the algorithms work. Mm. And I do want to shout out those moms because my neighbor has a two and a half year old and I've witnessed the life-saving effects of the iPad. <laughs> The iPad for her to be able to just give it to him because as she staggers away, she's so tired, you know, so it's helpful. I don't think that's destructive watching a cartoon or two. I'm more concerned about the social media that's deliberately addictive. And did you see the social dilemma too? that movie really unsettled me? Well, the one thing I'll say, yes, I did see a social dilemma. I'm not saying that it's harmful for your kids to have the iPad, but the it's not just addicted to social media. It's also complacency with so much screen time, right? So then when you actually try to throw a child in the real world when, they, when they're used to being stimulated by a device every day, all day, then that, that does kind of uh, weigh up. But yes, the social dilemma was super well done. Um, I think that it, it just it, it shined a, a big light on what is the what are the mechanics behind a lot of these platforms. And I think that a lot of people kind of forget the, the main business model. All of this toxic behavior that social media really induces is it's, it starts with a business model. And that's and that is to make money from your attention, to keep you on the platform as long as possible. So social media platforms are always just adjusting the algorithm to keep you on. If you were a parent right now, do you have in your mind, since you've done so much research, say you had a, a young girl, how old is old enough to be on Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram? 
And in your opinion, it's not science or, you know, this isn't the gospel. And how young is too young? If it was your child, obviously you're going to love your child. Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, that's a hard question to answer, right? Because um, a lot of it is really about their social environment as well. Are they in an environment where a lot of their friends are on Instagram at, you know, eight years old, <laughs> you know, so I, um, my goddaughter who I spend a lot of time and she's 11. Right. Um, and she is on TikTok. you know, she's allowed to go on and see stuff, right. You know, that is, you know, kind of like very PG rated type stuff, but she's not allowed to post on it. But, you know, on the same, on the same front, we're also seeing like, oh, just her consuming it and not even posting is really messing with her confidence, right? And so I think I'm a little bit um, more old school and I would try to have my child off social until high school, but I think that's not realistic for a lot of parents these days who will get a lot of social pressure from the, their kids' friends, right? And so I think it's, it's less about, I think elementary school is definitely too young, by the way. Um, so I would say middle school is like where you start to dip the toe, um, but it, it requires work. And so I think that, you know, for me, if I'm not ready to put in the work of making sure that like investing the time and energy above and beyond what I already do to make sure that my child is still healthy being on social while being on social media, then that's also a, a commitment as well. Knowing everything you know, you're a scientist and we haven't even touched on climate change. Would you have a child and bring it into the world? No, I've decided not to have kids. And I, I froze my eggs a few years ago and um, three years ago now, actually. And I think that for me, the world has kind of evolved into a really toxic place. And I'm not saying that everybody's going to be unhealthy, right? But there's so much shared trauma right now that's going around really unchecked, right? Um, and, I'm, and I also don't want to, you know, suggest that people shouldn't have kids. I think that people should totally make the decision that is that feels right to them. Um, but for me, my decision was a no. Um, you know, I just, I, I don't, I don't think that the world is in a very great place right now. And we, we as a people have to commit to doing more work to make it a better place. Mm, well said. And as an African-American woman or of Caribbean descent, do you feel safe in your body as you move through the world, given all you've seen and know? And again, as a scientist, I mean, on the ground, not diving out of an airplane, if anything, you're safer up there. I'm definitely safer jumping out of a plane. Um, no, actually, um, there's a lot of, you know, it's really interesting because I find myself in conversations with a lot of well-intentioned white people who say, oh, you know, it's so much better now, da 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 But what they are missing is the 24 hours a day of living in my skin, right? What they're missing is the, um, the you know, it's, it's I don't want to say violence in the workplace, but there's a lot of toxicity in the workplace when you're a black woman. There's a lot of, you know, kind of targeting out in the world when you're a black woman. I think that what I've done is I've just built up really insanely thick skin, which sometimes doesn't serve me very well, by the way, um, as a, as a re reaction to, you know, some of the things that I feel, but I would say, you know, overall, and you know, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm glad I'm here. Right. But, you know, would I describe my journey in this world as a safe one? No, I would not. Thanks for being so real. But how could it be safe? And especially over the last six years, we're trying to make the U-turn and go back. There are people that just don't feel you have the same value as me or of anybody just because of the color of your skin or even worse, the skin and that you're a woman, God forbid. Well, yeah, that that's a part of it. And then there's a lot of systemic stuff that goes on as well. For example, I, I got into a debate with one of my white friends who, you know, she's, there's a couple, there's a, um, a couple I'm, I'm really good friends with. And she was like, you know, people wouldn't have issues with the police if they just obeyed them. And I'm like, boo boo, that is not true. You know? So I, I literally, I remember, um, 10 years ago, I was standing on, you know how some of these small towns, they have one road that's downtown. <laughs> that's how Chapel Hill, North Carolina is. So it was Franklin Street. I was standing on Franklin Street 
And I came out of a you know restaurant and I saw my cousin sitting on a bench, like who I had come with, come downtown with. My cousin was sitting on a bench with handcuffed. And I, I walked up to her and I was like, oh my God, what happened? I was like, do you need me to call your mom? Da, da, da. And this officer busts out of nowhere. He's like, get back to like just yelling at me. And I'm like, oh my God. So I back up and there's like a, a crowd forming, right? So I'm like in the in the first line of the crowd, but not in front of it. And so I asked my cousin, I'm like, I'm like, hey, do you want me to call your mom? I can call your mom, have her, like, what's going on? And so the officer was upset that I asked my cousin a question standing in the crowd. He yanked me out the crowd, threw me on the ground, threw my, picked me up, threw me on the bench, bruised my head and my arm and arrested me and charged me with assault on a government official and failed to disperse. Mind you, I was not resisting at all, right? And so I literally got beat up in, by a cop in front of 30 to 50 people um, just for, you know, I don't, would he have done that to my, you know, white classmate, Rebecca? I'm, I don't think so, you know? And so, you know, when I, when you talk about safety, right, it's also part of the systemic stuff. It's not just, you know, your random Joe Schmo out here. It's literally the fact that a police can yank me by my arms out of a crowd, like essentially beat me up, throw me on the ground several times and tie my hands behind my back so um, so hard that the, the cuffs left an indent in my wrist for days. Right. So no, I don't feel safe. How could you? And he could have shot you and said you, he thought you had a gun and I'll bet he had no consequences for that assault. No, he had no consequences. It was eventually expunged. Like it went to the, you know, courts and the district attorney and stuff like that. And they were like, what the fuck is this? Right. You know, but, um, but it, it's still it's still very traumatic to the point where 10 years later, anytime I walk by a police officer, I cannot I look away. I just I, I turn my eyes to a different um, direction because I, I just have too much trauma of that experience. I don't think you can fix that. It's, it's a hard thing to fix. No, I mean, systemically, not just your personal part. You might be able to heal that, but I don't think we can feel system fix it systemically based on a 400 year history and the fact that it's still raging like a wildfire. Yeah, for sure. Like, and that's what I meant. Like, it's definitely a hard thing to fix because the system is so massive. Right. Um, and, you know, there, there have to, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but unless there are repercussions for people's actions, right. You know, they're going to continue their bad behavior. And I'm not saying every police is bad, but I'm so traumatized to the point where if I got robbed and shot in my leg, the first person I would call is my mother, not the cops. Well, statistics say you'd have a better chance of survival in that case. And like you pointed out, if there are no consequences, then there will it'll keep going on. If he got thrown in jail for five years and that happened pretty much 99% of the time, you wouldn't have it. It would be different. And also we see crime at the highest levels, corrupt politicians, corrupt Wall Street, and there's never any consequences. And that's why it keeps happening. The police seem like they're there to terrorize the poor and keep the rich safe and property safe. And that was the one, not silver lining, but the fact that I was a joint student at the time at Harvard and MIT, the district attorney was like, oh, you know, I don't want to like, you know, mess up her future. Okay, but what about the person who didn't, who wasn't at Harvard, who wasn't at MIT? What about the person who, who, whose parents are like poor living in a trailer and who don't have the resources or presence in the community that my parents had, right? And so I, 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 I benefited from that, like, that element of discrimination, but I, I still maintain that it's, it's horrible. Like, and I, I, and I think that that's why the system puts, you know, so many poor and under-resourced people in there because they don't have the means or the presence to fight it. And you have thrived like nobody's business, but do you ever here in America, but do you ever feel like maybe I'll just go live in Portugal or Spain and Hell yeah. Like as soon as I'm as soon as I'm done with um, you know, I I sell squad for like hopefully over a billion dollars. Um, I definitely I'm going to France. I'm gonna split my time between um 
St. Kitts, where my family's from, France and, you know, Brooklyn, you know, I'll stay in New York a little bit, but um, I, I, there's a big skydiving community in France. And I also want to kind of part own a vineyard. I'm a very big wino <laughs> person. And so I, I go to France actually every year because I'm like, okay, do I want to live here? Do I want to live there? Like, let me, let me, let me make some friends over here. You know, you're channeling James Baldwin. Exactly. But America is not going to be my end all be all. I can tell you that. Probably the most important question of the podcast. Can I live in the guest house when this happens? A hundred percent. I'll be your caretaker. A hundred percent. You have to come to my wine tasting. This I I definitely did it like I, over COVID. I, um, me and two of my brothers moved back to my mom's house temporarily just to get away from the city. And um, I used to have them I used to do these really intense wine tasting I'm like oh we're gonna we're gonna do Bordeaux today we're gonna do uh the Burgundy region and this is some Beaujolais and (laughs) and so yes and as long as you let me bore you with like hosting you for wine tasting you're absolutely able to stay in the guest house as long as it's good food your friends will be like am I crazy or is that the what matters most guy out there cutting your grass they'll be (laughs) like oh yeah he's kind of does a lot around here I, I I don't cook, but I literally cook specific food with specific spices just for the wine tasting. <laughs> We're going to have to order in. I don't cook either. But in France, that's better anyway. Well, there's plenty of chefs around. Exactly. One thing, first question, will you come back and we could do a part two in a couple months and just we have so much more we could talk about. And you're just absolutely delightful and inspiring. For sure. If you'll have me back, I'll be back, Paul. Good, good, good. All right. So speaking of which, we go out all over the world. There's a lot of young, beautiful souls out there of all ages, really. Do you have a word of inspiration uh, in this world where there are a lot of dark nights of the soul and there's a lot of beauty, too? If you almost like you could go back and speak to your 14 or 15, 16 year old self, but it's them They're Who knows where they are in the world? We have listeners all over. I get these emails and I see sometimes I see maps. What would you say to them, my friend? I would say to invest in finding your joy. Invest in finding your joy. We underinvest in our joy. And you, you're right. There's so many beautiful souls that are just so ruffled by the world out there. But once we find our joy centers, no one can steal that from us. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.